Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal stations to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute a new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its power in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Brothers and sisters, these are the opening words of the Declaration of Independence, a document that has ignited a quest for freedom among peoples throughout the entire world. This is a document that we speak of often, but few of us have read. A document that we invoke, but often do not fully understand. It's a document that was written in the midst of a great conflict between brothers, a civil war in the United States before we were even a nation. One of the most telling things about this document was the way that it was written and the fact that it was signed by so many men, each of whom, in doing so, took his own life in his own hands. In July of 1776, the independence and success of the United States as a nation was not in any way a foregone conclusion. And yet the men who gathered together to sign the document were willing to declare and put their name to this statement of their beliefs. This tendency of Americans to speak truth to power is written in the DNA of our nation. And as we sit in our nation in 2020 and we watch protests and we watch civil strife, sometimes we forget that these are in their own way as American as apple pie and fireworks. I like fireworks and I like apple pie. I don't necessarily care for insurrection. And yet it is an American tendency. 
We think of ourselves as a people of rugged individualism, standing firm for our own beliefs. And yet, that can sometimes be an illusion. A Princeton University professor named Robert P. George did an interesting experiment in his class. And I'm always very uh, interested. I used to teach in, in a university, and so I like interesting and innovative teaching tools. One of the jobs of a teacher is to take a mirror and to show a person who they really are, to uncover their presuppositions and the lies and illusions that we tell ourselves. And so this is what he did. He asked his students what their position would have been if they were white and living in the South before the abolition of slavery in 1865. He said, well, what, what, would, you, what would you have done? To a, to a man and a woman, right, the entire class came back and said, well, we would have been abolitionists. Obviously, we would have stood against slavery. Now, we do live in a, in a woke era, and it would have been suicide in that class to say, I would have supported slavery. But I, I think we can honestly, we can assume that these students honestly believed that they would. That they believed that they would have worked tirelessly to oppose it. But see, then the professor did something interesting. He said, I want you to write down. I will accept your claim. If you can remember one time that they advocated a position that would make them unpopular or would affect their ability to get a job or run counter to what was widely and socially acceptable. See, that's where the rubber meets the road on speaking truth to power. As the great evangelical theological website, the Babylon Bee, recently said. They had a, a headline. It said, major corporations bravely come out in support of incredibly popular, socially acceptable movement. Right? Because so much advocacy in the United States at this time centers around that which is already socially acceptable and popular. Let me just tell you, if you are advocating that which is socially acceptable and popular, you are not a radical. You are part of the majority crushing opposition. That is not what Paul is doing here. Our passage this morning begins with Paul as he normally is in prison. And from Paul's experience, we can see what it means to truly speak truth to power. When our passage opens this morning, Paul has been in jail now for two years. And he's in jail for a very simple reason. The governor of Judea is weak and doesn't want to make a decision. Last week we talked about the Roman governor of Judea. Now, I, I want you to understand, we got two governors here. I know that I'm going to interpose their names, okay? I know that I'm going to make that mistake, so y'all be praying that I don't do that. The governor, Felix, has been in control of Judea for many years. He has been a terrible governor. 
He has presided over multiple insurrections with bloody repression afterwards. And as he comes to the end of his term, he is beset on all sides by people who want to see him removed. In fact, as Paul is languishing in jail in his palace, there are a group of Jews and Syrians who are going above his head on a completely different issue to have him removed. Well, Felix doesn't want to make a decision about Paul because he knows that if he releases this man... He will face opposition from the Jews. And if he condemns this man, he may face opposition from Romans afterwards who will say, you threw away a Roman citizen. And so he does the next best thing. Nothing. Just leaves him in jail. Hoping against hope that, I don't know, maybe the guy will die. And this is where Paul ends up. This isn't the first time Paul's been in jail. Not the first time that he's been opposed by people in power. And yet, this had to be incredibly wearing on this man. Because after all, he had had a vision from God who said, you will go to Rome and you will evangelize there. But then something happens. See, the Roman governor is recalled. The, the birds come home to roost and this court case that has been winding its way through the Roman courts comes to fruition and the Roman emperor, at this point Emperor Nero, before he goes crazy by the way, removes Felix and replaces him with another governor, Festus. Our passage this morning begins as Festus is coming into the scene. In Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, we read, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. He has been on the job for three days. And he begins to see that his predecessor, Felix, has left him a ticking time bomb in the basement of his palace. This man named Paul. And as he does what any diligent governor would do, takes a tour of his area and goes to the most important city in his province, Jerusalem, he is buttonholed immediately by the Jewish high priest. I love that term, buttonhole. That comes from the, the presidency of Lyndon Johnson, who was known to use his height to grab people by their lapel. And there's actually a really good image of him leaning over somebody and trying to make his point to them. And that's kind of the image that we have here of this group of Jewish officials circled around the Roman governor. And he's like, hey, I just want to come here and talk to you guys. I want to have a good relationship. And they're like, yeah, 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 good relationship. Have we mentioned Paul? Now, they're smart. They don't say, hey, you need to kill Paul. He's a bad dude. Because they know that their case is pretty much empty. But what do they do? They ask for a favor. Hey, you're a new governor. We know that there's been insurrection and everybody's mad at the Romans and you want to do a good job. So would you do us a favor? Just 
bring him to Jerusalem where we can have a trial. Nothing can be more reasonable than that. Why do we want that? Well, because we're going to kill him along the way. To his credit, Festus bridles at this a little bit. And he decides, you know what we're going to do instead? We're going to have another hearing. And I'm going to make a decision. And so what does he say? He in verse 5, he says, So let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let him them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. So two years after his first trial, Paul is being brought back in again on trial for his life. Well, his new hearing goes much the same way as his old hearing went. Because nothing has changed. There are still no witnesses. The accusations made by the Jews are still empty. The reality is Paul has done nothing to violate Roman law or Jewish law. We read that when he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, many, bringing many serious charges. We know what those charges were. You defiled the temple. You're working against the unity of the Roman state. And Paul's defense is the same way. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offenses. And but Festus... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now look at the, the, the uh, compromise. That the, I mean, you can watch this guy. He's trying to make the best out of a bad situation, right? He's been given a terrible job. He is the governor of a nation that is just as stiff-necked as they were in the desert against God. These people who would not serve their own God are definitely not going to serve the Romans. And yet he is here with a small force to try to pacify a large, angry people. And he's trying to, do, he's trying to, trying to make some compromise. He says, look, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll, obviously you have no case. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Okay, you can all call witnesses and I'll be the judge. Does that sound fair to you, Paul? That way every, we can get this done with. But see, Paul understands what's going to happen. He sees the direction that they're going and he knows what will happen as soon as they get on the road. And so Paul invokes the nuclear option. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. He says, I don't need to go back and be tried by the Jews again. And I don't need you to try me there. You're Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Why? Because he's a Roman citizen. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not, escape, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And here's what he says. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, 
answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Paul knows the man. He knows what he's facing. And so he gives him a way out. He says, you want to be done with me? I'll give you a way out. A way that doesn't involve the Jews stoning me to death or stabbing me in the dark. I'm going to make an appeal. Now, it's interesting. In Roman law, you could make an appeal before a verdict or after a verdict. It was a little bit different in each case, but basically what he's asking for is a change of venue. He's saying, I don't think that I'm going to get a fair trial here, so I want to go to Caesar. (coughs) Now, this seems at first glance to be sheer madness, right? Because at this time, the emperor is Emperor Nero. And we all know that later on, Nero goes nuts. But at this point, Nero is actually doing a good job administering the Roman Empire. He seems to be uh, a stronger, more apt emperor than the previous emperor Claudius, and it looks like things are kind of on on a good trajectory. And Festus, seeing this as a convenient way out, agrees and says, you know what? You want to go to Caesar? You're going to go to Caesar. And in the same way that the tribune offloaded his problem on the governor, now the governor offloads his problem on the emperor. But he has a problem. Here's the problem. It is obvious that Paul has not committed any breach of any Roman law that he understands. It's also obvious that he hasn't really breached any major law of the Jews that he understands. But he has to write up a report to the emperor explaining what the crisis is. And as far as he can tell, the the crisis involves obscure issues of theology in an alien religion. And so he puts Paul back in jail and thinks on this issue for a little bit, trying to figure out what it is that Paul is supposed to have done. Fortunately for him, very rapidly after the Jews leave, an expert in Jewish law and politics arrives. As Paul's preparing for his departure, he is introduced to two of the most notorious characters in late temple Judaism. We read in verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days, and Festus laid Paul's case before them, before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And he lays out what all happened and all the things that were going on. And he says, but being at a loss to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem or be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for a decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And so Festus is seeking out advice with this thorny problem. And in doing so, he comes across King Herod Agrippa II. Now, it's difficult when we begin to talk about 
the different kings in Palestine named Herod to kind of figure out who is who. If you're like, oh, this is another Herod, is this the same Herod? Did this guy leave like a hundred years? Like, what's going on here? It's, it, it is understandable for you to be confused. The Herodian family is a confusing family. They're confusing for a couple of reasons. They had two major tendencies that made it difficult for us to understand who is who. The first one is anybody who is a king from the family is called Herod. Okay, this is how you can, the Bible can refer to King Herod multiple times and be talking about totally different people. Okay, they called the King Herod in the same way that the Romans called the emperor Caesar. Caesar was not a title. Caesar was the last name of Julius Caesar, the guy who was kind of the first to take over this emperor role. And so sometimes we talk about Caesar Augustus and Titus Caesar and Vespasian Caesar. Caesar is a name that becomes a title in the same way Herod is a name that becomes a title. But it's even more confusing because the Herodians had another tendency. And that was the tendency to marry close family members. Okay, if you were to look at a regular family tree, most family trees kind of look like a triangle. You have two people at the top and then they kind of spread out as they go down. Well, the Herodian family tree looks like a square because they had this tendency for cousins to marry cousins, divorce them, and marry other cousins. They also had a tendency for uncles to marry nieces. And so it becomes very complicated and, to be very honest, pretty gross. This Herod Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the king who killed all the babies, tried to hunt Jesus down, and built the temple. Herod the Great ruled until about 3 B.C. His father, Herod Agrippa I, was the king who imprisoned Peter, killed John's brother James, and was eaten by worms when he claimed to be a god. That was in Acts. Herod Antipas, his great-uncle, was the one who imprisoned and killed John the Baptist, okay? Interestingly, his sister, Drusilla, was the one that was married to Felix. So it's all really, they keep it in the family in Herod's time. Agrippa himself was a thoroughly Roman guy. He grew up in Rome and had been appointed to his current kingdom by the emperor Claudius. In fact, the Romans viewed him as a kind of expert on all things Jewish. But there was one other thing that made him kind of interesting and also weird. See, he shows up with Bernice, who is the beauty, the grand beauty of ancient Roman Palestine. She is known as this stunning and cosmopolitan woman who has had multiple relationships with multiple emperors. At one point, she is the consort of two of the three emperors during this period. And so this is his girlfriend. But it's also his sister. Yeah. Right? And that's problematic even back then. And so he's very notorious as this guy who's dating his own sister, and it's really creepy and weird. And this is the people that Paul will be given the opportunity to share his faith with. What follows is one of the best examples of Paul's testimony given to people who are undeniably lost. Festus is lost because he's a Roman. He has no idea what's going on. 
Bernice and Agrippa are lost because, well, they're apostate Jews living in an incestuous relationship. You throw into the mix all of the other hangers-on and people that are in the court there. This is the group that Paul is going to go and give his testimony to. And it is this testimony spoken to powerful people that have the ability to control his life and death that begins to show the true character of Paul when faced with opposition. So how does he do it? Well, he begins by addressing Agrippa and Bernice generously. I want you to think about the dichotomy here, how this would have gone if John the Baptist had been in the situation. What does Paul say? He says, I consider myself fortunate that, is because, that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today. Against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He doesn't open with a blank condemnation of his highly irregular couple. He doesn't judge them for their sin. Instead, he engages with them. For the sake of the gospel. Now we need to understand this. This doesn't mean that Paul approves incest. We know that he doesn't. In the book of 1 Corinthians. Right? We see him. Opposing. Vociferously a man who's dating his dad's ex-wife. Right? We know that he's against this. But in this case Paul is not really interested in Agrippa and Bernice's moral failings. He's interested in their relationship to Christ. John the Baptist would have addressed Agrippa's sin. Paul is addressing Agrippa's soul. And this is important for us to understand. See, as we seek to share our testimony in a world that is lost, we need to understand that lost people act like lost people. Which means that we can't expect somebody that doesn't know Christ to obey the precepts of Christian morality. And so Paul overlooks the depths of Agrippa's lostness so that he can establish rapport and give his testimony. Brothers and sisters, often when we come into the place of evangelism, we are going to have to overlook people's moral failures in order to gain access to them to share the gospel. Now, understand this. I'm not saying that we have to approve of the things that are happening. But we also need to understand that the gospel, the gospel is not condemning people's morals. It is about showing them that all men are sinners and in need of grace. It doesn't mean approving of sin, but it does mean that our primary goal with lost people is not confronting the signs of their lostness. Our primary conf- Goal is confronting the cause of their lostness. And as he does this, he begins to share his testimony. He begins with his past, right? So he describes thoroughly his Jewish upbringing and his allegiance to the sect of the Pharisees, right? And we've heard this defense over and over again. We don't need to go through and read it because it's almost verbatim the testimony that he's given before. He grew up as a Pharisee, as a Jew among Jews. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, right? And how does he justify the zeal that he had? He said, look, I was so zealous that I persecuted the Christians. 
He doesn't say it with pride, but he does say it unashamedly. He does say it openly. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't hide from his past. He declares it proudly and he uses his past sins to demonstrate the glory and the mercy of the God who saved him. Now, this is important, brothers and sisters, because everybody here's got a past. We all have a past. Everybody in this room today has done things that they are ashamed of. We all have things that haunt us in the night. And yet no matter what we have done, God is fully capable of saving us. And not just saving us, but using the things that we have done in the past as a way to declare his own glory. Right? It is the fact, it is the because we are as broken as we are that God gets glory for saving us. Brothers and sisters, I have done horrible things in my past. I have used people. I have been disrespectful to people. I have killed people in horrible ways. I don't say those as a, as a way to brag. I say those to show you the depth and the riches of the wisdom and forgiveness of God. God is glorified in me because if God can use someone like me, then he can use anyone. This is the power of the testimony. Because every person feels within themselves the weight of their sin. And if we can show somebody that there is a pathway out from underneath that weight, then walls begin to fall down. And so Paul shares who he was and he moves on to his conversion. He begins to talk about the way that he changed Again, this is a repeat of, of things that we've heard before. He talks about how he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church and how he saw a great light and was knocked to the ground and how he heard a voice. And what did the voice say? It said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and there's a line here that we don't find in other places. It says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so for, for so many of us, we know that feeling as we've felt God calling out to us and, and, and working in our lives and trying to, to bring us to him. And we fought him and we fought him. And, and there's this image of God's trying to drive this stupid ox in the direction and, and the ox is fighting against the pokey stick. Say, like, why? It's hard to fight against the pokey stick, Paul. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And notice this, Paul doesn't hide from the supernatural aspects of his conversion. He didn't come to a realization. He didn't have a philosophical epiphany. He didn't study his way to the truth. All of those things would have brought glory to his name. No, no, Paul was knocked to the ground by Almighty God and spoken to. Paul is not where he stands because of any good thing that he did, any choice that he made. He was pulled from the path by God and set on a different path. 
So often when we share our testimony, guys, we don't want to talk about the supernatural aspects of it because let's be real, it makes us look weird. You start talking about God spoke to me, people are like, whoa, you mean like God talked to David Koresh? Some of you guys don't even know who I'm talking about. Right? In our common culture, when somebody talks to somebody, they're telling them to go into the jungle and drink poison. And so we don't want to say, well, God talked to me. And yet, that's what happens when we're saved. God fundamentally changes who we are so that that which was bitter is now sweet and that which was ugly is now beautiful and the darkness that we loved is dispelled as we come into the light of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Paul doesn't hide from the supernatural reality of his conversion. He hits it head on and faces and forces his audience to deal with the dichotomy of an intelligent man who is well-spoken, who believes in the resurrection from the dead. Paul does not allow people to think that he's just a well-meaning wise man. They have to think he's either insane or something happened to him. And brothers and sisters, when we give our testimonies, we can't escape from the supernatural implications of coming to Christ. And so he moves on and begins to talk about what the implications of that transformation are. And he talks about his mission. He talks about what God has called him to do. Right? One of the critical factors of this new life is a call to action from the one who saved him. It says, but rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me. And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and, have the, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. He was saved for a purpose. And that purpose is a call to action. Finally, at the end of his long testimony, Paul offers a defense for his actions in Jerusalem, a defense that we have seen over and over again, a defense that culminates in Christianity as the end of Judaism and not an opponent to Judaism. He is arrested by the Jews because he has proclaimed the fulfillment of prophecies that they all believed in. Now, what's the effect of this? Well, he concludes his testimony with an invitation. Festus comes back and says, Paul, you've gone insane. Your, your learning has driven you crazy. And Paul comes back and says, I'm not crazy. And then he puts it to King Agrippa and says, Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. 
At this point in the story, Paul has everyone's attention and he moves to an important question. He's been proclaiming the fulfillment of things taught by the prophets. And so he asks the question, do you believe in the prophets? He asks this to a pagan man who represents an emperor who calls himself a god. And he says the same question to a lost man who is in love with his own sister and who worships his urges. And yet Paul is not afraid to ask this incredibly offensive set of questions, something that we are desperately afraid to do in our day and our age, to ask somebody to question their deepest beliefs. This is important, brothers and sisters, because so often when we give our testimony, we've been told, and I've said this often, that our testimony is the strongest tool that we have in our arsenal of evangelism. But this is also important. It's also a tool that we misuse. See, so often when we give our testimony, we think of it as a story, and it is a story, but it's a story with a point. So often when we give our testimony, we live in a world where people tell crazy stories, and somebody will look at you and they don't fight you on it. They just said, well, you know, man, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. So you go live your truth and I'll go live mine. And so we have to be prepared as we give our testimonies to drive it home. It's not enough just to stick the knife in. You got to twist it. You got to make it, make it tell. And so Paul does. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to a changed life, to accept the gospel that he's brought. And everybody converted. Oh, wait, no, they didn't. I wish that's how this story ended. I wish that Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and everybody there came to Christ. But the reality is nobody came to Christ. He spent two years in jail talking to Felix. And Felix was as lost when he left as when he got there. He just got done pouring his heart out in the midst of all of the leaders of Roman Palestine. And nothing changes. Agrippa and Bernice sidestep the question. They're not offended, but they're just not interested. Festus thinks he's nuts. Everybody else ignores him. We need to understand that this is not failure. This doesn't mean that Paul was a failure. Indeed, he has done exactly what he has been called to do. He has been a faithful witness to the work of Christ in his life, and he has done it in the heart of the Roman government there. He has spoken truth to power at great personal danger. And for him, this is victory. Guys, we need to understand that Paul's testimony was central to his evangelistic ministry. And he was not ashamed or scared to share it with anyone, whether it was a poor Gentile in a teeny town in the middle of nowhere to the Roman governor enthroned in power and majesty, Paul shared the same testimony. 
This has been central to his life and ministry for the entire time that we have known him. And I need you to understand this, guys. Each of us has a testimony. This testimony is a love story that describes how God pursued us and won us with great struggle and great loss. It's interesting, whenever we have people over to the house, my wife and I, once we've gotten to know them, we love to tell them the story of our relationship, of how we got married, because it's long and drawn out and it's got all kinds of ups and downs. It's a great story. I love it. It involves me breaking up with her and her breaking up with me, me dating her roommate, all kind of stuff. It's crazy stuff, right? It's funny, but it's, it's, it would be, if we had ended up not together, it would have been sad, <laughs> but we're together. And so there's redemption at the end. And, and our testimony is the same way. It is the love story between us and God. It is the story of our redemption. It is a powerful picture of redemption, realization, and completion. And in many ways, our testimony is a gift to us from God. It is something that we can look to to remind us of his love. Our testimony is a gift to us and what we do with it and how we use it is our gift to God. We worship God by taking this testimony that he has given us and sharing it with the people around us. Brothers and sisters, every Christian here has a testimony. If you are a Christian, you have a testimony. No one is born a Christian. You become one and you, when you accept Christ. At its most basic, a testimony is a story of who you were and who you are now and how you changed. But we need to understand that, that our lives are not made with a cookie cutter. And so your testimony isn't going to look like somebody else's. But here are some principles for us as we share our testimony. First one is be transparent, right? As we've seen, Paul isn't shy about his past sins, and we shouldn't be shy about our past sins. None of us is perfect. In fact, that's the whole point of this. These past failings are part of our story of redemption. If you became a Christian early in life, this is a little bit problematic, right? If you became a Christian when you were like eight or nine, you don't have a lot of before to talk about. Like, well, this one time I stole the big wheel, and man, I crashed it because I was hopped up on red, red drank. Like, that's the extent of your testimony. That, that. But that doesn't mean you don't have a testimony. Because your testimony encompasses all the times in high school that you fell away. And that four years in college when you thought you were an atheist and you joined a nudist art colony. I know some of y'all did that. I don't know who it did, but some one of y'all did it. Okay? Because our testimony encompasses the fact that God is constantly redeeming us and constantly calling us back. Brothers and sisters, the biggest sins that I've ever committed, I committed after I came to Christ. Some of the worst things I've ever done in my life I did after I came to Christ. And yet the picture of God is one who redeems us over and over and over again so that his mercies are new every day, fresh every morning, 
So those events in your life are tools that can be redeemed for the glory of God through your testimony. Second, be specific. Don't speak in vague terms about life change and awakening. Lots of people have stories like that. I'm a member of a CrossFit gym. There's all kinds of people there that have had their lives changed by fit aid or working out, buying cool tight shorts and going out and doing stuff. We live in a culture that worships life change. You were regenerated by God. You were forgiven from your sins. You were reinstated into a right relationship with God. You were chosen before the beginning of time by a God who knows every hair on your head and knows the days of your life. That is the God who saved you. Be faithful to that God and the story. Finally, be humble. You are not the center of your testimony. So often I see Christians and they tell a testimony and it's like humble bragging. It's like, well, I used to run with three gangs and we only committed hate crimes, and, but then I came to Christ and now I'm perfect because I'm awesome. They don't say I'm awesome, but that's the implication. Your testimony is not about you. Your testimony is about God. Your testimony is not about bringing you glory. It's about bringing God glory. The God who called you and forgave you and saved you did the work. You didn't. So brothers and sisters, we all have a testimony. But most of us aren't sharing it. While every Christian has a testimony, most of us are not sharing our testimony regularly. Most of us like to think that we would have been Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, that we would have been Paul standing before the Roman governor, but most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would have been Peter, not when Peter was before the Sanhedrin, but Peter in the in the fire, in the garden before the crucifixion, denying Christ. Most of us are scared, out of our minds, to be numbered among the weirdos who talk about hearing from God. But I want to lay it out to you like this. If you are ashamed of your testimony if you are ashamed of the God who saved you, you have some really serious questions to answer about whether that testimony is even real. If you can live in the grace provided by God, if you truly believe that when the sun stops burning, you will still be praising your Father in heaven, and you can't tell other people about that, there is something broken inside of you. Brothers and sisters, your testimony is a gift to you. Use that to honor God. It is the only true and real form of worship that you have. 
Finally, there's some of you here, some of you listening, that are not Christians. Maybe you walked an aisle 50 years ago and haven't really thought about it since then. Maybe you were raised in the church, but it hasn't really resonated with you. Maybe you just found this online, or you're watching with a family member. I want you to know that you are living your testimony right now. That the, all of the anguish and pain in your life right now that feels like it is so overwhelming, like it can never go away, all of that is being used by God to bring you to a place where you can accept the gift that he has for you. And I want you to understand right now that you are in the midst of a story And while it may seem dark right now, trust me, the story gets so much better. If you will open your heart to this, if you will allow him to move, he will transform you into someone that you don't even recognize. And all of the pain and the brokenness that you are enduring right now will be turned into something that honors him, that you can use as you worship him. If you feel right now like you are in the midst of this story, that you are being moved by God, I would encourage you to reach out to one of our deacons. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Reach out to our digital deacon right now. You can private message him or you can call up to the church. We have people that would love to talk to you about what it looks like to accept Christ. You're in the middle of a story. It is a love story between you and God and it's about to get so good. Well, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. I want to encourage you all. Develop your testimony. And share your testimony. Will you pray with me now? Dear Lord. God, I ask that you would give us the strength to speak truth to power. Whether that power is our elected officials, our government bureaucrats, or just the cultural power that speaks lies about you that we would be able to boldly talk to people and refute the idea that you don't exist. That we would be able to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and your grace. Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength to be able to do these things. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.